welcome to the Cake Sugar Coach podcast. Join me each week as I interview experts who will share the science of sugar, sugar addiction, and different approaches to recovery. We hope to empower you with the information and inspiration, insights, and strategies you need to break up with sugar and fall in love with healthy whole foods so you can prevent and reverse chronic disease, lose weight, boost your mood, and energy. Feel free to go to my website for details on my coaching programs and to access free resources, kicksugarcoach.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the interview today. I have with me Emily August, who is an associate professor of literature at Stockton University. She teaches 19th century British literature and culture, medical humanities, literatures of crime and detection, and creative writing. She also is a poet, and she's just uh, published her first book of poetry, and she and her poetry investigates the tops at topics of intergenerational trauma and inter- interpersonal partner violence, and she is a published author. Um, Emily and I did an in- interview previously about a couple of months ago, which was absolutely gobsmackingly brilliant, and I've had amazing feedback on it. And in that interview, she shares her own journey of addiction addiction recovery and talked a bit about abstinence and and some of the history and narrative around abstinence right now. So we're going to carry we're going to carry on from that conversation and talk a bit more about body um, body body neutrality. I'll just leave it very general. But Emily, take it away and, and tell us a little bit more about the context in which you're involved in the work that that our our summit and my podcast talks about. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. Um, I'm really excited to be here and to be um, connecting with you again and carrying on our conversation. Uh, It's just such an honor to be here. Um, I thought I'd start out just by um, kind of contextualizing my lens a little bit or my framework. Um, I know in this context of things like a kick sugar summit, uh, we're really used to seeing people like scientists, medical doctors, psychologists, nutritionists, wellness coaches, Um, And it can be a little bit odd to sort of see a literature professor uh, show up in a context like this. Um, And so I just kind of wanted to contextualize how I I come to the sort of food addiction recovery universe and the abstinence-based recovery universe um, through my lens as a humanities scholar, really. And what I research and write about and analyze and teach about um, is the body, the history of the body, um, how cultures represent the body, how societies talk about bodies and kind of the the consequences of that um, and the sort of significance of the different ways that we position the body and um, sort of add value to the body. Um, And particularly I'm I have been very interested in that for the history of medicine um, and how oftentimes um, the way that societies talk about the body is influential to medicine and the way that medicine um, builds a kind of standardized set of norms around what a healthy, correct body is supposed to be. Um, And in my service work in academe, I work um, a lot in kind of diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives. Um, And so participating in um, the kind of social justice work um, in in bringing social justice perspectives to institutions. Um, And so kind of in the the food addiction recovery and abstinence-based recovery universe, um, I bring that sort of lens of cultural criticism paired with 
my, you know, lived experience as, um, uh, a person with addiction, um, my lived experience with inner work and then with abstinence-based recovery. Amazing. So for people who have not had a chance to listen to your first interview, which you need to go and do, why don't we just do a little bit of your, your, your story around addiction and addiction recovery? Yeah, that sounds great. Um, so my story of addiction is, um, like, like thousands and thousands of others. It's a very familiar story. Um, my, some of my very earliest memories, um, literally from toddlerhood are of binging food. Um, there are several anecdotes, um, throughout my time as a toddler and like preschool age that I remember, um, binging on food, um, endangering myself in order to access food, to, to binge on it, um, hiding and eating massive quantities of food, um, even as a toddler. Um, you know, as the years progressed, it became very obvious to me and I'm sure to, to people around me, um, that I had a sort of classic presentation of binge eating disorder, um, you know, and I came in, in my search, I came to learn that term as well, um, probably as a teenager. Um, and so I, you know, my experience was of, um, you know, zoning out, um, rapidly consuming massive quantities of food to the point of physical agony, um, like, like agony, uh, not just like, oh, I'm a little bit full or, ooh, I ate too much. Um, and, you know, as a, as a kid and a, and a sort of, um, teenager, those episodes were more opportunity dependent than anything. And then gradually with more independence, um, those episodes became more frequent. Um, they became longer in duration, um, and then eventually sort of ended up taking over my life, um, and sort of becoming my way of eating. Now, of course, like many people with addiction, um, I was also living a very full and rich life parallel to that. Um, you know, I was enjoying romantic relationships and friendships. I was um, earning degrees, traveling the world, pursuing hobbies. Um, and especially I was doing a lot of inner work. Um, you know, I was lucky to grow up in a household that prioritized, um, you know, personal growth and evolution. Um, I have a long history of uh, therapy and, and that being modeled to me as, um, you know, a healthy way to engage with life. Um, and so all of that was also happening as well. Um, but this sort of vexed and tormented relationship to eating, um, was still always a sort of dominant feature of my daily life. Um, and just an increasing source of distress and increasingly, um, impinging on my quality of life. I would occasionally sort of you know, like many people try to address or try to understand um, why I could not moderate my consumption of really any um, substances that we that we now think of as highly processed or addictive substances. Um, I could never moderate nicotine, alcohol, um, you know, sugars, flowers, all that kind of stuff. Um, and trying to, to figure out why that was and, and doing my best with the knowledge I had to to moderate that. Um, I would often do things like mimicking other people, like the way that I saw them eating and then use that as a foundation of like, oh, okay, that's what, that's how much you're supposed to eat, or that's what a meal looks like, or, um, that's how many times a day I'm supposed to eat or whatever. Um, and so over the years, trying various things that, that looked like, um, what we now 
have come to call things like intuitive eating or moderation or harm reduction, um, and then also pursuing several modalities um, in therapy, um, both just for my own life trauma and also specifically for eating. Um, and by my late twenties, I had had this epiphany that like, you know, I mean, none of those things ever worked for me. Um, none of those things rectified or healed or addressed in any way, my inability to eat food, um, in, in a way that didn't affect my quality of life. Um, and so by my late twenties, I kind of had this epiphany and I was like, look, this is just the way my body was made. I don't know why. And I don't know why I can't change that, but I'm going to stop trying to intervene in this. And I'm just going to consume substances the way that I am designed to consume substances. And I did that for many years. Um, and of course, what happened for people like me is that that took over my life. I mean, um, the consumption of substances ended up becoming most of my life. Um, I gradually cut, cut out people. I gradually cut out activities. I sort of engaged in the cycle of going to work, coming home, and then binging on food and alcohol, passing out, starting all over again the next day. Um, and it just became progressive. Um, and then was finally, I went back to therapy and kind of thought, okay, I'll give this one more shot. You know, it had been several years, maybe the information had changed. Um, and did, did a bunch of great therapeutic modalities with my therapist, worked on a lot of different trauma and different stuff, you know, healed a lot of amazing stuff, but still didn't touch. None of that touched my, my relationship with food. And my therapist finally then introduced me to the concept of food addiction and abstinence-based recovery. And it was an immediate um, lightning bolt. Um, it was so obvious to me that, it, and I don't know why I had never heard the term food addiction um, or why I had never come up with that term or that concept to apply to my relationship to eating and to um, highly processed food. And it was just so obvious. Um, and so I, you know, walked into the universe of abstinence-based food addiction recovery finally. Um, and for me, that unlocked uh, such a such a rich um, empowering engagement with life, um, and has been a sort of, um, a real turning point for me in, um, having, uh, in being able to participate in my own life and being able to maximize my quality of life. Um, and so that, that was kind of my, my history with coming to abstinence-based recovery. Of course, when I got, when I got there, <laughs> I encountered um, what I saw as lots of different cultural problems. Um, you know, I was I was never a cultural fit for abstinence-based recovery. Um, and so that sort of inaugurated my journey of really customizing a an abstinence-based recovery program and lifestyle that was a fit for me. Um, and that's kind of what I've spent the last five and a half years doing is... Um, is building a life of abstinence um, that is in line with um, my politics and in line with my values, which you know I, I wasn't finding in abstinence-based recovery culture. And I also, there were aspects that I wasn't finding in intuitive eating and moderation culture or sort of like clinical eating disorder treatment either. 
um, kind of both camps. And unfortunately, it's definitely, um, as we talked about in our podcast interview, there's definitely a sort of, um, you know, very bifurcated, very two camps, never the two shall meet sort of attitude. Um, and I, I, f- I found both. Honestly, I find the dominant culture in both camps to be hugely problematic um, for just at people to access healthcare that they need. And so I've been really just kind of trying to work on how to customize a recovery that is that is empowering and um, accessible. Wow. Okay. Awesome. And before we we go there, which is new ground for me, I'm so excited to learn this from you. I want to go back just a little bit with your your addiction journey recovery. So at some point, alcohol and cigarettes were released from your addiction um, journey as well. Was that before food? Like, did you get rid of those first? Was food the last of the addictions to go for you? Yeah, so I had quit smoking um, one year almost to the day before I um, entered uh, food addiction, when entered abstinence food recovery. And so quitting smoking for me really was my first um, experience with abstaining, Um, my first experience with um, really eliminating and permanently turning away from a substance that was addictive to me and that was impeding my quality of life. Um, It remains the hardest thing I've ever done to this day. There is nothing harder that I've done than quit smoking. Um, But so what was great about kind of quitting smoking, um, is that I was able to have a really deep experience with abstinence and with detox, with kind of, with kind of all the things we experience in early recovery. And then the sort of drawn out process of evolving in abstinence recovery, I was able to kind of go through that with cigarettes first. I also had the benefit. I didn't, um, touch on this in my kind of bio, but I also had the benefit of, I went to AA for a year um, when I was like 14 to 15 or 15 to 16. Um, I, you know, as a teenager, it became evident that I was starting to have a drug problem. Um, and so got put into AA for a little while or a substance abuse problem. I can't even remember um, all what went on in those very tumultuous years. Um and so I had had at a really formative time of my development, I had had exposure to the 12 steps, basically. And so an exposure to the idea that addiction exists and abstinence is one way of um, addressing addiction and managing addiction. Um, and so when I came to um, quit smoking, I had a lot of that kind of knowledge still in the back of my mind, even though I had not pursued AA beyond um, my, my teenage years. Um, and so that really helped me have a lot of neutrality around some of the concepts around abstinence, right? I mean, abstinence is so loaded in our culture. Um, it's been loaded for thousands of years. Um, and I just kind of blissfully didn't have a lot of that, um, baggage, uh, when I came to, to, uh, require abstinence. Um, and so I didn't have to work through a lot of that. Uh, so yes, I quit smoking a year ahead of time. I had all of that sort of dark night of the soul, all of that. And I took it really seriously. I have to say, that's the thing about, um, nicotine addiction is that it's, um, it's really kind of not taken that seriously. It's like, oh my God, just quit smoking. And then when someone quits smoking, it's like, phew, thank God, you know, let's move on. Um, and you know, 
quitting smoking can be just as much of an identity um, revolution and just as emotional and traumatic as as um, any other addictive substance. And we just really don't give that enough cultural attention. But I, I did. I went through this whole process of shifting my identity and everything you need to do um, to become abstinent with an addictive substance. So um, I, I, I had the benefit of that experience in approaching um, food and alcohol. I, I did not, um, I never even tried to quit drinking until I was introduced to food addiction recovery and found out that alcohol is a form of processed sugar and that you can't drink if you are in, you know, authentic abstinence-based recovery. And I was like, uh, that's going to be a problem. So that was, that was truly, um, you know, the food for me was never, I was never a foodie. Um, obviously I, you know, enjoy a high quality meal or whatever, um, and still do to this day, but, um, I, I was never attached to like food traditions and food holidays. Food for me was almost universally just a drug was a vehicle for getting high. Um, and so I, I, um, the food was a little bit easier for me, frankly. Um, the alcohol was, um, catastrophic and, um, I guess what I say is that smoking was physiologically the hardest thing I've ever quit and drinking was psychologically, emotionally, spiritually, <laughs> the hardest thing I've ever turned away from. Uh, it was, uh, it was a huge part of my identity and it was my primary drug. Um, and it was deeply upsetting mm. to leave that behind. Incredible. Incredible. And with respect to your food addiction, um, sorry, just a sec, the question just popped out of my head. Um, I don't know. Hopefully it'll come back because I've been wanting to ask you this. With respect, oh, I know, because you're a binge eater, because you were a volume eater, abstinence is one tool of recovery, right? And the other tool is weighing and measuring or putting sort of portion control. Do you do that? And what does that look like for you? Yes. Yep. So um, I... Um, I entered food addiction recovery through a program that, um, advocated that advocates, um, elimination of, uh, processed sugars, elimination of flours, um, and then, um, consistent, um, bounding of quantities and then, um, consistent meal times or, you know, consistent amount of meals during the day. And so that's just how I was interested. That's what I thought abstinence was. And so when I say abstinence, I refer to all of those things, um, and yeah, so I use all of those tools. Um, for me, the combination of all of those tools has has been what has been so freeing, so liberating, so empowering. Um, especially when I am when I was transitioning into recovery um, as as a lifetime binge eater. Uh, so many of us um, have no idea. Like literally, I had no idea what a what a portion felt like. Um, you know, yes, I understand there's like in nutritional information on a, on a box of food or something, but, um, my experience of my body, I didn't know what a portion should be, what a meal should be, when I should eat, you know, I just, that is not how I had ever eaten, um, when left to my own devices. Yes. Um, so today do you weigh and measure all your meals? I do. You yes, do I would. I, I love, love, love doing that. Um, I find it incredibly liberating. Um, and it just, it takes away a huge, um, 
part of what I spend addictive mental energy on is like, should I eat a little bit more? Should I eat a little bit more? Should I eat a little bit more? Um, and I don't have to think about that. Um, my portions are extremely hearty. Um, you know, we'll talk about this, I'm sure later, but one of, one of the primary focuses for me is coming to recovery, um, without diet culture, without fat phobia, without, um, attention to weight or size at all. And so for me, weighing my food is not a tool to control the size of my body. Um, it's a tool to, to keep my, my recovery on track. Um, and it's a tool to make sure that I always eat enough food, um, and that I eat the kinds of foods that are really fueling to my body and that maximize my quality of life. Um, because I don't always know what those things are. And even if I did, even if I had the intellectual knowledge, um, I, I have not previously been able to, to apply that or implement that. Got it. Really helpful. So did you have weight to lose yourself? Um, <laughs> that's an interesting question. Um, I came to food addiction recovery, not expecting to lose weight, not knowing if I could lose weight um, and not, not being interested in losing weight. Mm -hmm. um, certainly from like a Western biomedical and sort of, um, you know, diet culture standpoint, um, I definitely was, you know, quote unquote obese for sure. Oh my um, so, gosh. So my, my body is a very different size today than it was when I started food addiction recovery. Oh, um, okay. but again, yeah, that's not, um, it's, it's really important to me that that's not, um, a barometer of recovery for me. And I, I hear you completely. I came into food addiction or sugar addiction recovery, normal weight. And I, I, everyone was talking about their size and how much weight they dropped. And I'm like, it's not an issue. This isn't, this isn't why I'm here. Right. And so I wasn't sure if you had that same experience, but you didn't, you truly did have a body that, that, you know, once you fed it, right. You know, released like you're, like you're, you're talking hundred pounds or something. If you were obese, mm -hmm. wow. You reversed significantly more than that. Yeah. Really Emily. That's amazing. Okay. I didn't realize that you, so that's interesting. You and I both had the same experience of being like, I don't really want to talk about my weight. I want to talk about my body. Right. Um, but even though for you, truthfully, there, there was weight to lose or, and weight that was lost. So let's go into talking about your, what do you see as the cultural, I don't know what the right words are, are miss, miss, fit like peace like what's what what's meant like educate us on what's missing in these in these cultures in your yeah. opinion, in your opinion <laughs> yeah so I'll start um just kind of from my personal experience right and um you know I was really surprised I was really lucky to grow up in a household that was um you know body positive um fat activist um you know we didn't diet we didn't weigh ourselves we didn't pick apart our appearances or or value appearance at all um, and so I grew up with values, um, that certainly weren't shared, uh, when I was a kid, um, that they, that were very eccentric when I was a kid around, um, just embracing the body as a neutral object, a neutral biological object. Um, but that over time have become of course, more and more mainstream, um, and, you know, were completely internalized for me, even, even as a child. Um, and so 
you know, I've, I've, I've long been involved in um, fat activist, fat positivity, um, you know, body neutrality, all, all of the umbrella of um, kind of communities um, that embrace bodies at any size um, or any presentation, um, various disability studies, communities, etc. And so I was really aghast and really quite distressed um, when I came to abstinence-based food addiction recovery to discover um, the, the, the huge part that weight and size play as barometers for recovery and just the um, values of diet culture um, and the values of fat phobia that seem to be really prevalent in those spaces. Um, it was really agonizing for me um, to... Uh, to, to join a community of that kind in the first place. I knew that's where I needed to be in order to um, launch an, a, a recovery journey um, and to launch a lifestyle of abstinence, but it was not a cultural fit for me. Um, and it was a really painful um, kind of onboarding experience for me. Um, and so really right from the get-go, um, I needed to figure out a way to run an abstinent recovery program without engaging at all with weight or size. Um, and so that really informed and, and, and really just, um, focusing on the neuroscience of addiction and of abstinence, um, and, and approaching the tools from that perspective, right? Things like portions, right? I'm not, I'm not approaching a food plan to figure out how can I engineer a food plan to be as skinny as possible? Um, all of that kind of stuff, right? So just using the same tools, but using them in a way that is unrelated to, to controlling what my body looks like or how much mass it takes up on the planet kind of a thing. Um, by the same token, what became, um, really distressing for me as well is that is my discovery that, um, sort of mainstream clinical eating disorder treatment and sort of intuitive eating and moderation communities, um, are also in their own way, really steeped in a kind of ableism, um, around addiction and around abstinence, um, and the sort of dominant idea that I encountered from those communities is that, I mean, in the most, in the, in the most kind of extreme sense is that like addiction doesn't exist at all, or that addiction has no physiological or physical component, that it's all emotional. It's all just, um, you know, you know, once you get, once you get emotionally and psychologically right, uh, you know, it disappears. Um, which is just so profoundly ableist. I can't even, um, barely articulate how upsetting that is. Um, to, uh, you know, abstinence is synonymous with restriction, right? Um, and again, I, I understand how someone would arrive at that conclusion. Um, as I mentioned before, abstinence is obviously an incredibly loaded term with, with, a, with a pretty horrifying cultural history. Um, at least white Westerners seem to be unable to talk about abstinence without also moralizing it or associating it with like, um, um, punitively avoiding pleasure or something like that. There's just so many and like, you know, sin and morals and, um, 
there's so much that has been put onto abstinence as a concept. Um, unfortunately, I think a lot of people's knee-jerk reaction then is to be like, well, abstinence is bad. Abstinence is wrong. Abstinence is unnatural. And my knee-jerk reaction is to be like, all that stuff that you put on abstinence is, is wrong, right? It's just like, it's all just like culturally constructed. Um, and so, you know, really trying to also raise awareness about addiction and abstinence, raise a to destigmatize um, abstinence, um, and to just kind of um, scrape away that kind of long history of just really bizarre associations and practices. Um, to be able to honor and embrace abstinence as a health management tool, um, and to be able to approach then abstinence without all that baggage, I think it'll be difficult for us to really reckon with how useful and how effective abstinence is medically and, and um, physiologically until we can move away from that uh, punitive history. And then um, the last thing that really sort of distressed me about my engagement with both abstinence culture and um, you know, intuitive eating culture or, or clinical models of ED treatment is a kind of ableism around chronic illness. Um, it's been really disappointing to discover that there's still, I guess, kind of like a mainstream view that illness is bad and that illness is wrong and that illness is inferior um, and that being ill or having an illness or having a health condition is imperfect. Um, and that's really shocking to me. Um, you know, I, I grew up, I grew up around chronic illness. I grew up with a parent with chronic illness. And so I learned very early that, um, you know, I mean, I was exposed very early to the fact that the person I loved most in the world, the person I trusted and respected most in the world was not healthy and was never going to be healthy. Um, and that, that person was still valuable and amazing and deserving of love and pleasure and civil rights and access to, um, the bounty of life experience. And so I just don't come to, you know, I've encountered a lot of like, um, you know, in all of these communities, a lot of like, um, this idea that like having, and, and I think of addiction as a chronic illness. Um, I should back up and say that. Um, and that's how I um, describe that. Um, and that's, that's my framework for looking at it. Um, and there's just still a lot of like shame and like shaming around, um, identifying with illness. Um, and that's really sad to me. And I think that's a major, major, um, barrier to people just accessing the healthcare that they need. Um, you know, chronic illness is, is a human variation. There have always been people with illness. There will always be people with illness. There is nothing inherently wrong with illness. Obviously that doesn't mean just, you know, illness is great. You know, people should have illness. Um, no, of course, everyone deserves access to healthcare and to management strategies that will maximize their quality of life for their specific body. 
but not everybody has a body that is going to eventually reach some idealized, um, you know, um, norm of health and wellness. And that's not, it's not okay to say that bodies like that aren't, aren't equal and aren't just as good. Emily, that's so amazing. Yes. So I'm just going to go back to recap a little bit. So um, when you're talking about you're in the intuitive eating, the eating disorder recovery world, and you notice that there was this there was this abject denial of addiction, that they didn't believe that it was really about there was a physiological body piece. It was psychosocial, emotional. And if you did your recovery work, your relationship to food would normalize and you'd be able to moderate and you, and, and this, and the sign that you had made progress and that you had recovered or were heading in the direction of recovery were, was if you actually could moderate that if you could have a little bit of every, whatever, all the kinds of foods and not go off the deep end, that that was a sign that moderation was a sign that you were recovered or recovering. And there was this denial of, of addiction and, and the value of abstinence. And then you get into the abstinence recovery world and there's this diet focus and this, this whole focus on, you know, we need to eat this way to change the shape of our bodies. And really people are getting sugar flour free because they're on a sugar-free diet. It was another freaking diet, right? And I totally understand what you're saying about that. And I can tell you as a coach, now that I've been doing this long enough, the individuals who do addiction recovery work, food addiction, sugar addiction recovery work from diet mentality will chronically relapse, chronically relapse. It's just another bloody diet. It, you have not, you're not doing recovery work. So you figured out really darn quickly, listen, I'm okay to come here and learn from you and do weight measured meals and to embrace abstinence. I did it with cigarettes. I understand what I'm doing here, but I don't want to talk about this as a tool to change, to improve, to, to improve my body. I'm here for the, the, the physical and the mental benefits of being non-addicted to substances, to getting high on food. And then you realize that even beyond that, even beyond that, there are people that will come into recovery that are trying to reverse healthcare conditions, which, which is a fair and legitimate thing to want to do. And of course, we all do. Miraculous things take place in our bodies and minds when we embrace abstinence and whole foods. But there's a really big difference from that being the main motivation again. Again, it's just another form of trying to fix the body because somehow there's shame when we have, for me, I was ashamed to have migraines, Emily. I know that sounds lame, but I had depression. I had cystic acne. I had migraines. When I was in my teens, I was quite overweight. And then in my 20s, I started to cut out sugar and I took up running and it fell off and I was been at a normal weight. And by the time I found addiction recovery work, 12 steps, you know, I had been at the same weight for like 15 years. But it's all that same kind of mentality where we get tripped up that the, the shape of our bodies, the size of our bodies, the wellness of our bodies is a source of inner criticism that makes us feel like we're less than or we're doing something wrong. And I walk us through how to heal from that because I have it. I can tell you, I have that. That's a great question. <laughs> um, I'm just jotting down a couple notes here. Yeah. It's... I think it's difficult to heal from that because um, it's so culturally novel. 
you know, like we're in, we're in the really early stages of um, valuing all bodies at all, right? I mean, this is something, you know, bodies have, the the body has been used as a tool of, um, you know, hierarchy and control and, um, you know, for, for, for a very long time in Western culture. Um, And so, to think, I mean, we're still at the very beginning of figuring out how to value people equally for gender and race and sexuality. And then to think that, um, I think for a lot of people, it's very difficult to incorporate something like health and wellness into that umbrella because um, for, for a number of reasons. Uh, one reason is because the sort of Western biomedical model um, is a part of establishing and maintaining bodily hierarchies in our culture. Um, you know, there, it, it means something, it, you know, there, there are ways to be healthy and there are ways to be unhealthy. Um, you know, there are standards around what makes you healthy or unhealthy, there's a hierarchy, um, you know, it's, it's always such an achievement to be healthy um, when there are plenty of people who will never be healthy. Um, that's just the way that their bodies came into this lifetime. Um, so I think it's, and, you know, we think of health still as a virtue. Um, we think of health um, and we, we equate health and quality of life. And it's not that that isn't true some of the time for some people or even most of the time for most people. I'm not trying to say that health and quality of life are unrelated. And I'm not trying to say that we shouldn't pursue um, what health means to us as an avenue for quality of life. What I'm getting at is that um, is an acceptance, a sort of radical acceptance. And this is this is part of what I mean by body neutrality, I guess, which was kind of your original question, is a radical acceptance of of the value neutrality of all presentations of all bodies that there is nothing. And and what I mean by value neutrality um, so it, that's kind of a term that comes out of uh, the sociology discipline um, and sociologists use that term as um, to mean um, kind of practitioners coming into the field um, after having removed their own biases and values and sort of judgments. Um, and I use it sort of loosely to just refer to um, approaching any anything without pre-decided value or without like what society tells you is, is the value of this thing or, or is the, is the moral of this thing. Um, so the removal of that kind of moralizing and bias around, um, certain kinds of bodies are better than other kinds of bodies or certain kinds of bodies deserve, um, things that other bodies don't, or, um, you know, there's a huge part cause you know, people do start to pick up on this a little. And so like, in, especially in wellness culture, um, there's like this, um, you know, these slight shifts where people, where people try to like account for that. So, um, in abstinence culture, um, a lot of people who are trying to move away from diet culture will then put the focus on function, right. On like physical function, like, oh, well, it's not about weight loss. Um, I'm just, you know, I'm just, you know, 
my motivation is that I climbed a mountain and, um, you know, that's a sign of my recovery is that I climbed a mountain, um, and that my body is capable of climbing a mountain. And I got to say, there's always going to be lots and lots of bodies that aren't going to ever be able to climb a mountain. And those bodies aren't any more or less recovered, you know, and those bodies aren't any more or less valuable or vibrant. Um, I don't know if that. It is. Yeah. Yes. And I can feel in my own head, some of the, 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 what's clearly in my own consciousness that you're speaking to. And I would love to have recovery around this because I think I've totally swallowed the Kool-Aid that if we're un, if we're unhealthy in some way, other than congenital birth, you know, something you were born with, like cerebral palsy or something like that, that somehow it's a reflect, it's a moral reflection of, of either my thoughts or how I'm caring for myself or something like it, it, it's something wrong with me. If there's something wrong with my, if it shows, you know, it shows up as a health issue in my body. And that it's an achievement, right? That there's something right with you if that is rectified. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And what would it be like if we, and I don't know if you go here, like this whole sort of idea that we're spiritual consciousness in a, in a body and that there are different, some schools of thought is it's just our, our current incarnation cloak and I don't know what I believe. I'm open-minded about all kinds of things, but you know that 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 the quality of the person is not the body, like whether it's thin and beautiful, and blonde, and blue-eyed, right? In in our Western culture, and or male and blue-eyed and blonde, like the, all that sort of crazy hierarchy and the levels of oppression and injustice that happens around the shape or color or gender or sexual orientation of a body, and how much horrific cruelty is inflicted on human from humans to humans based on the body and how we've internalized shame around I am an overweight black woman like talk about a freaking or overweight black woman who's maybe non-binary like talk about the layers and layers of oppression around um that in a culture that has has placed levels of value around that. Like I can see how it's, it's a weapon. We use the body as a weapon against sort of sorting ourselves out into privileges and how, when the individual themselves disconnects from the messaging and the narrative that my body is less than because I'm any, you know, some sort of fringe orientation, how the whole thing will has to fall apart. Cause if we don't, if we deeply inside heal that inside us, it will eventually fall apart. And does that make any sense to what I'm saying? Oh yeah, no, that's exactly, that's everything that I'm saying. And so my journey, because I, I was so privileged to be raised with those values. And so for me, what I struggle with is, is your question. Like, how do we heal from that? What I've been trying to do is to articulate that to other people. Um, because it is so radically different than how we live, but I was I was lucky enough to kind of come come into this lifetime with those um, values taught to me early on and internalized early on. Um, I was talking to a friend the other day um, about something similar, and she was like, "You know, what's a step by step guide to this?" And the metaphor that I used was, I was like, "You know, when you 
when you go to a chef, like a professional chef, and you're like, this is amazing. What's the recipe? And they're like, I don't know. I don't use recipes and how frustrating that is. Um, and that's oftentimes when people ask me, like, how do you do this? Or how, how did you learn this? Um, I'm not sure. I do know um, when we to talk about applied tools, here are some of the things that I do that um, help me cultivate and sustain this perspective. Um, if you're a sort of academic type, um, disability studies is, is a field that, that is doing a lot of this cutting edge work in um, embracing and accepting and normalizing um, disability and illness. Um, and so, you know, just Googling disability studies, looking for some of the main titles um, in that field, I think can be really um, effective. Um, I also, in in my abstinence journey in under the recovery sort of umbrella, um, one of the things that's been really useful for me is, um, and this isn't going to sound related, but I, I suspect that it is because I because I'm thinking of it right now. And so hopefully it'll tie together. But one of the things I do is um, I, I proactively pursue a lot of addiction content. Um, so one of the things we like to lull ourselves into believing in specifically the food addiction recovery community is that food addiction is essentially different from other addictions. Like there's something different about food addiction from alcohol addiction, cigarette addiction, a drug addiction, et cetera. Um, and I just, having had exposure to AA early on, um, also being sort of multi-addicted myself, um, I just don't see that at all. And I just don't buy into that at all. And it's actually been um, really important for me to seek out content. Like there's several YouTube channels I follow where people um, interview people with addiction, living with addiction, um, uh, people in recovery, et cetera. Um, and it's almost all drug and alcohol recovery. Um, and every single person's story is a version of mine. I have yet to encounter a person addicted to meth or heroin or, um, you know, alcohol that whose story is like qualitatively different than mine. Um, okay. So that mindset of equalizing our stories, of equalizing our, of going beyond the boundaries of our, of our own lived experience and connecting with the lived experience of others, I think is sort of an enemy to like, to like some of those social hierarchies, right? Um, it helps extinguish our sort of our, the, the stories that we tell ourselves that like these bodies are inherently different from mine, or like this way of being embodied is better than this, than this other way of being embodied. Um, I also just read a lot and talk to a lot of people about their experience of being embodied. So things like, um, you know, I read a lot of, um, I follow a lot of people who just are embodied in different ways than me, like people who use wheelchairs, um, people who, um, you know, eat different kinds of cuisine than I do, um, people who have a different sexuality than I do. Um, you know, I read a lot of, uh, transgender narratives. Um, I watch, um, I watch, you know, movies or TV shows about, um, people who survive different kind of trauma than me. Like 
I don't know. I just think opening yourself up to like the universe of possible embodiments, um, you just kind of inevitably realize that like there is not a superior embodiment. God, it's brilliant. That is so brilliant. That is so incredible. And if I could, if I could add to that, um, I had a father who was old school sexist, truly, like probably on the, the misogyny spectrum. He was my dad and I loved him and he loved me and he was actually my primary attachment. So I, I'm not saying this to be disparaging or unkind. I think uh, later on in life, he would probably have said himself that he grew up with, he was a Dutch uh, uh, immigrant. He was both racist and sexist, truly. Mm-hmm. And um, he grew up with it. And later on in life, he had no kidding, three wives. So he married a first wife, he had three daughters, didn't work. Married my mother, had another three daughters, didn't work, married a third wife. And so he had three wives and six daughters. That man had a lot of practice, a lot of feminine, strong feminine women, women around him who were were calling out some of his sexist views. And he changed profoundly over the course of his life. But as a small girl, I deeply, deeply believed that I was inferior as a female. Mm-hmm. I hook, line and sinker. I believed it. I was ashamed to be female. I tried to be far more androgynous. Um, I was ashamed to cry because my father would say, oh, just like a girl, you're crying again. Like, right. Like there, and my, someone kept my dad off in traffic up the front. He'd say, oh, it's probably some broad. He truly didn't even believe women should be driving. He didn't believe I should go to university. Really quite an extreme example of, of sexism. And it wasn't until my 20s and I got into university and I took a women's studies course and I was mortified by the term feminist. Mm. I just thought, oh my God, I'm not a feminist. Like somehow that was like humiliating to to be feminist. I don't even know why. I think because I didn't want to be different than men. I wanted to be, that was the ideal, was to be like a man. They were rational. They didn't cry. They were little headed, whatever. I don't know what I thought it meant to to be male, but I thought it was better. It wasn't until I got into university and I took women's studies courses and the weeping and the pain and the grieving and the healing of that. But the journey through healing my own internalized sexism is going to be no different than my own journey of internalizing this idea that there's the very the universe of embodiment that you're talking about, that there's there really is a better different way, like that bodies aren't all equal, that I mean, frick, I'm not even putting the right words around it, but you know what I'm saying, right? Like, I think it'll be a similar journey. And I think that as we learn to approach each each other with that, we are equal, all deserve love. We have the same needs and wants that we're all human souls and that we have different incarnated bodies and different experiences in these bodies, but not one is better than the other, you know, that that will begin to heal for all of us. Because I would bet that this is one of the oppressions that impacts almost everybody it's probably one of the most universal forms of internalized depression and forms of of self-hatred and shame i think there's probably very few people on the planet unaffected by this Mm -hmm. i i I definitely think um i mean i certainly think there are cultures or subcultures um or certain types of belonging or not belonging that give some people more access to a more equal uh, way of viewing embodiment. Um, you know, if you, if you grow up not in the dominant culture, you have an easier access to this viewpoint. But I will say that 
um, I do find that what is in common amongst all of it is, um, is, is the health and wellness. It's, it's like, it's, it's that last little, like we can't seem to understand that health and wellness is also a social construct and that especially medical health and wellness is a social construct. Um, and that we aren't even going to be able to figure out which aspects of it are social constructs until we start directly addressing, picking apart and healing some of this stuff. Um, I'm sure in the year, you know, 2090, after we've done all this cultural work, I'm sure there will be um, aspects of medicine that we can save. Um, but we don't know what those are yet. <laughs> um, you know, and to just hold up certain bodies and certain forms of embodiment as being the correct standard of health and wellness. Um, certainly nobody, very few, I think certainly U S Americans or North Americans or whatever have escaped that sort of, um, juggernaut, that ideology. Um, but so you can imagine, so coming from this perspective, you can imagine how absurd it is to approach addiction recovery from the standpoint of weight, right? It's so deeply unrelated. Um, you know, my, my weight or size is never going to be an indicator of my recovery. Um, and just as you said, I have yet to meet in my five and a half years in recovery, which is, you know, still very young, but I'm very actively involved. I know lots and lots of people. I have yet to meet a person who has managed consistent, sustained abstinence who engages with weight. Right. I haven't met that person. Me neither. Um, because it's, um, not only is it unrelated, it's anti-related. It's, it's a distraction. It's a barrier to building a, a full, rich life of, of, genuine abstinent recovery. Um, so that piece, right. The whole diet culture piece, the whole weight piece, you know, I've, I've really worked hard to build a life, a, a recovery life absent of that uh, by the same token. So, so my kind of, um, it's sometimes almost greater distress has come from the, the maligning and the stigmatization of abstinence coming out of, um, ED recovery coming out of intuitive eating. Um, and it, it has been really important to me to be, to kind of carry on with the journey of publicly normalizing abstinence and going through that long process of cultural work to destigmatize abstinence, to embrace abstinence as a healthcare management tool that, that is uh, unrelated to morals or values. It's not, it's, you're not a better person. If you're abstinent, you're also not restricting or denying yourself of anything. If you're abstinent, it's just a thing. Um, and on the other side of the coin, if you, if you are someone who finds yourself using abstinence as a dieting tool, right. Or weaponizing abstinence, um, in favor of diet culture, then that is just as ableist, you know, that is, that is just as, um, harmful and that contributes to then keeping up those barriers to healthcare access that all of us who require abstinence are trying to, to attain. 
Yes. And I can imagine how many, how many of us that are walking this journey, walking this path, wake up feeling uh, shame, shamed of our bodies, um, preoccupied with the shape or the wellness of our bodies, and how much of that energy could be freed up to do the recovery work, which is where we reclaim this absolute knowing that we are we are a spark of the divine, that we are here to optimize our gifts and to share them and to be valued, to, to, to receive love, appreciation and approval, regardless of the shape of our body or the color of our skin or the capacities of our, our of our limbs, like that kind of stuff. Like we're freed up to do that deeper healing recovery work, which really brings the joy and the peace that we're all ultimately looking for. And for me personally, to access all of those things that you're talking about, I require abstinence. That is not true for everybody. And that's okay. Not everybody requires abstinence to be able to access the divine, to be able to actually apply their inner work. But I do. And that has to be okay. Just like it has to be okay that other people don't require that. And that it's completely possible to, you know, attain enlightenment without abstinence for I'm sure many, many people. And I'm so happy for them. You know, go on, sister friend, and do your thing. But for me, I do require abstinence. I know thousands of other people who do as well in order to really attain um, our maximum quality of life, psychologically, um, spiritually, emotionally, et cetera. And um, stigmatizing abstinence is not, is not helping us do that. Right. And stigmatizing illness and stigmatizing size and all of it. It's all part of the same trap. And I just feel like you're broadening what we can see as part of the, the oppressions and ways that we can feel inferior or be, be, be minimized or underappreciated or undersupported and under-resourced all because of this broader lens around body neutrality. This is amazing. And even though this might sound esoteric for some people as we're riffing academically on this, but it's really very real. Like I, I do know people even in my own little world of like other coaches that I can, I know I can see it. They're still trying to lose weight. It's about their body shape because they haven't healed the shame that somehow having a big bomb and big thighs makes them less than there's shame tied up in it. And so what would that recovery look if, if they stop trying to get to this standardized, idealized body type? What could that energy do to sort of help them embrace their bodies, fall in love with what they're working with that day, right? And, and or even co- not fall in love with it. Just just let it exist. You have no value attached to it at all. You know, wow. just, just I just have a body. This is just what it looks like. This is just what it smells like. Whatever. You know what I um, mean? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. See, I'm not there. Like I am on this path. This is just opening my own. Right. Cause I, right. Right. It's just neutral. It's just yeah. neutral. I mean, we've loaded the body with so much significance and we've used it as a tool for control and oppression for so long that, I mean, it's, it's a great, great deal of emotional, psychological, spiritual, and intellectual labor um, to walk away from that. Really is. And then you think about people like I, I remember in my daughter's high school, there was a young man, gosh, I forget his name. He's renowned. I'm sure you might remember it. No arms, no legs, little, little tiny uh, a foot, tiny little flipper of a foot. And he traveled the world and he made he, he made fantastic money sharing the message 
If I have no arms and no legs, and I am certainly no less. Do you want a hug? Right? He was known as, do you, do you know who I'm talking about? I don't. I'm sorry. Oh, no, that's okay. It's okay. Yeah, he's just beautiful. He's like, do you want a hug? So he'd go in front of all these high schools, no arms, no legs, and they'd have to help him get sit, sit, sit up on the stage. And, and he'd talk about self-love and he'd talk about, I'm not my body. I'm not my body and I'm not my mind. I have a body and I have a mind, but believe me who I really, who I am and what I have to offer. I don't have arms and legs to, to, to bring to the table, but would you like a hug? And people would line up to hug him because he got it. This is just, it's just my body. This is right. This doesn't, doesn't mean I'm not valuable. It doesn't mean I don't have love to give Helen Keller blind and deaf. Another example of like really extreme examples of like what's possible when you, when you don't let body identity play into the whole sort of, Oh my gosh, I mustn't, I must be worthless. I have no arms and legs. Like he didn't feel that way. He knew his own magnificence and his worth. And it feels like, wow, that would be, I hope it doesn't take to 2090 for all of us to wake up to this and how important it is that we do wake up to this. And in the context of recovery, we want true recovery, right? We unhook from diet culture. We unhook from this whole sort of putting all these values on our body and fine body neutrality. So you're writing a book on this, right, Emily? You're, you're taking a year off to sort of work through some of these themes and ideas. Yes. I am theoretically hoping to um, really kind of get together a community of people more than anything. Um, I'll pro I'll pro I, I would like to write down my ideas um, and communicate them in some way. So that will probably be part of that. But more than anything, like um, there are so many. So my big thing, like my whole tagline is recovery with a social justice framework. And I only address like one aspect of that. Like for me, it's about ableism and it's about addressing ableism in the recovery community and addressing um, kind of diet culture, body negativity, um, that whole range of things around embodiment. But there's so many other avenues and so many other places that recovery culture is wildly behind um, in social justice initiatives um, and in, in questions of diversity, equity, inclusion, and access. And so what I would like to see is like, because I can't, I can't do all that. I, I don't have expertise even in all of that. Um, so I would like to see a community of, of people come together doing this work and, and really bringing a, a intersectional multifaceted social justice framework to abstinence recovery, because we need it. Um, in, in, in some, in some senses, um, clinical ED treatment and intuitive eating just need it a little bit less because that's, that's, some of that is already baked into the framework, some of those politics and some of those approaches. Yes. Um, we do not see this. I mean, I mean, we touch this a little bit through things like harm reduction, um, you know, needle exchanges. Um, there are, there are in some communities, um, people doing, um, the really hard, great work of boots on the ground, um, getting, getting people to access health, getting, um, people with addiction to, to, to have access to healthcare. But we're not seeing that at all in the food addiction community. Um, and we're not really seeing it in abstinence, right? We're really, a lot of that social justice work is being applied to harm reduction and moderation. And that's amazing. And that's beautiful. And please carry on. Um, but, but we, but those of us who require abstinence as a healthcare management strategy 
are really at a moment of having a dearth of, of um, social justice approaches and services. That's what I want to see happening. So clear. Totally get it. Oh my gosh. Absolutely wonderful. Yeah. And I think that some of the, the work that uh, is a little further along in the ED, uh, eating disorder communities, intuitive eating, et cetera, um, because there's so much focus on recovery, on the psychosocial emotional pieces, I can see where social justice conversations came into that. One of the places where I think it goes sideways, and you've, you, you've said this, I think, is that they see saying no definitively, no, I, that just doesn't work for me. I'm going to break up with sugar and flour. I just don't eat it as being like self-denial or, you know, like it's punitive, as you said, the perfect word. But I would suggest that I think that what's happening is, and I, from my own personal experience, it felt punitive. It felt like, how come everybody else gets to eat that but me? I felt so left out. I felt so deprived and denied. Ultimately, I felt unloved. Like that, that, that this was because somehow I was unlovable or it was just absurd. And I realized that me saying no touched that part of me that felt unloved that felt uncherished, that felt unsafe in my childhood, that comes from a background of trauma. And I didn't want to poke it. Mm-hmm. So when you say no, you poke it and that mm-hmm. stuff comes up and you get to do. So in some ways, the addiction recovery work is doing deeper recovery work because when you say no, that that those feelings of like, oh, when have I felt like this before? Oh, that's right. All these memories of times when I felt emotionally abandoned. It, because it feels like emotional abandonment when everyone else gets to have birthday cake, but, but you, right? Like you're mm-hmm. left out. You don't belong. You're different. You're unloved. You're not one of the cherished members of the, of this group that gets to partake in the feast um, mm-hmm. and the fun and the pleasure of it all. And so it's really cool. Like, yeah, if these, if these, oops, if these groups could come together a bit more to, to, and then in both of these groups, you coming in with the social justice piece, like just the, the the kind of recovery we have the potential to access and do together, all because we share a common like food problem is really astonishing. Yeah. And, and so what you're describing, the two things that I hear you really bringing up are um, one <clears throat> that are you know, which, which, um, we hear a lot from intuitive eating communities is that, um, the whole problem with saying that abstinence is synonymous with restriction and self-denial and, and, and self-punishment, um, you know, changing, and that's what I mean around destigmatizing abstinence, changing our perception of abstinence as, um, it's, as not necessarily saying no, but saying yes to healthcare management that I require, um, and, and, and really taking that loaded stigma out of what abstinence is, um, y- you know, for, for me, um, saying no has, um, been, been a saying yes in ways that I never imagined possible. Um, and then also the companion realization that, um, abstinence because a, it's very culturally unpopular and because B, for those of us who require abstinence, go through a period of both physiological detox, which is extremely uncomfortable, and also emotional relearning um, and and doing all of that trauma healing work, um, which is, 
we, we need resources to, to get through that. Um, we need community resources. We need medical resources, psychological resources to get through that. We're doing all of that work. It's not that people who do other approaches aren't doing that work too. I, that work can be done in a variety of ways. Um, you know, and it's not that there isn't a psychological component to addiction. Of course, there's a psychological component to addiction as you, um, as you, as you bring up. Um, of course, there's a relationship between um, addictive consumption and, you know, trauma or psychological disturbance or whatever it is. Um, and of course, then those of us who um, enter into abstinence have that, we've been self-medicating that this whole time. And so that rises up and those things have to be processed. And that's a lifelong journey of inner work, um, just like it is for people who choose uh, moderation. Um, I actually don't don't know for sure that that's all that different between us. It's just that um, for those of us who require abstinence and who stop self-medicating those feelings, yeah, you know, the inner, a, a new level of inner work kicks in for us because there was, there was a part of our inner work that we weren't able to do when we were consuming the substances that numbed certain parts of, of that experience. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes, 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 yes. Very cool. Any final words you'd like to share today? I know we've just blown through another hour. So man, I could talk to you all day, but any final words you'd like to share on the topic of body neutrality and its context of, of addiction recovery? Um, I, I, I would love to just see a future and I'm working toward a future in which all approaches to recovery are, um, equally considered, um, are equally valued and none of which are weaponized, um, and just all of which can be assessed on their own terms. And, um, that's the way that we're going to ultimately figure out which tools really are effective is being able to assess them free of their histories of stigma. Amazing. And a world where you see that this carries over into all bodies, you know, people being body neutral, that that is, that is a, that's a beautiful, I aspire to that now. Thank you so much again for your time today, Emily. I look forward to the community you're building and the work that you'll, you'll, you'll create in the years to come. Thanks so much. Thanks for tuning in this week. If you would like more interviews, more information, and more inspiration on how to break up with sugar, go to my YouTube channel, Kick Sugar Coach, or my website, kicksugarcoach.com. See you next week.